my guest today, the great Daniel Torden, hailing from hailing for one of those shires in the UK. His name I can't remember. How are you, Daniel? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm in uh, Yorkshire. <laughs> Yorkshire, uh, South Yorkshire. Yorkshire, excuse me, excuse me, yeah. Uh, well, listen, man, uh, you're a great friend of the show. I'm glad to have you on, especially especially given that uh, that uh, Kyle had car trouble this morning and and had to abandon ship, so it was going to be it was, it was going to be awfully lonely without you. It's a pleasure, always a pleasure. Good, yeah, thank you. So I know we've got we've got some stuff that you were uh, hoping to chat about today, but I got to ask you uh, before we get going, you. Um, sold all your all your all your shit <laughs> i have <laughs> yeah i've sold i've sold a ton of stuff uh things that i can't take to uh, australia with me um but i've also shipped a load of stuff out there as well i've shipped my shit <laughs> um on a uh, on a container ship uh, it will take about they reckon it will take about 16 weeks to get there so with any luck, I should be there before my stuff arrives. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a date? Do you have a, a plane tickets purchased? I do. I do. I'm leaving the UK on Valentine's Day, February okay. the 14th. Okay, interesting. Yeah. All right. And so you're just sitting... days to go. <sighs> That's exciting, man. It is. Big change. Yeah. And you're, change. So you're just, you're just sitting in an empty apartment? Pretty much, for, yeah. For, my desk is another, gone. For, All my podcasting gear's gone. I'm sitting on a little, a little very uncomfortable chair on a on a rickety little uh, side cabinet with a laptop. Now, <laughs> is your uh, is your um, chakra poster or whatever that is? Is that gone off the uh, door? That's gone. Yeah, that's gone. <laughs> my chakras are my chakras are all out of wood now. <laughs> oh boy, everything's well, gone. Well, that's It'll exciting. Good, I'm looking looking forward to it. Can't wait to be back with Mariella. Yeah, what, I'm, I'm sure she's excited too. What, what is she saying? Yeah, she's got a countdown as well. I've I've got a uh, countdown app on my uh, on my uh, on my phone that tells me how many days, uh, and she she's got one that measures it to the second. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> so I wonder I wonder how long it's going to take you to adapt. How long how long until it feels like home? Because when I moved, pretty, pretty quick, I think. You think? Yeah, I think so. Oh. So I, I moved from uh, Columbus, the capital city here in Ohio, to Cleveland, which is an old industrial city up on the Great Lakes. Um, and when I moved up here, I mean, I've been here for 10 years, but yep. uh, I remember the day that I went home to visit my family and felt like I was visiting because, yep. it, because it was always like going home. And then one, yep. day, it was, one day I was visiting. It was weird. Yep. It took a while, though. Yeah, it does take a while. It's like, um, I mean, I've been living in a, in a small room for like the last three years on my own. And I would have never said that a small room would feel like home. But, you know, packing up and, and everything, I'm sort of sitting here looking at the room thinking, yeah, this room has been been kind to me. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, the yeah. minimalism of it and, uh, you know, sort of got me through a pretty bad time in my life and I'm ready to move on now. But I think I might miss my room, actually. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's something about a small room when it's cozy. It's like there a is. den, you know. Yeah. It's like an like an animal, like a like a like yeah. a dog will will exactly. find comfort in its den with all the closed walls around you. You know. That's it. What's uh What's Mariella's place like? Quite big, um, quite big and airy. Um, 
it's like a, a one story so a lot of the properties there are, are one stories what what we would call in the uk a bungalow but they okay. call them units um so it's it's, it's 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 a house but it's kind of all spread out on one one floor um very very minimal again very simple so we we call that a ranch here a ranch uh, a ranch if ranch. It's, it's, a ranch, yeah. We call so it a if, ranch. <laughs> not a ranch. Uh, yeah. you know, if, if if the house is entirely one one story, uh, we call that a ranch. And um, they're more expensive. They're more desirable for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's in, it's in the country and everything, so it's it's quite nice. Yeah. Well, that'll be interesting, man. I'm gonna be curious to hear what kind of what what you what you do for fun, what you end up doing that is unusual, um, you know, that's a big change from what you used to do. It's probably all going to be a big change. I'm guessing there's yeah. going to be um, I mean, your your life's going to be a lot more social because you're going to be with Marielle all, yes. all the time, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we've got quite a nice little uh, friend network already sorted out over there. So, yeah, it's quite interesting via Twitter. It's funny, isn't it? Most most of the people that I've um, made friends with on Twitter uh, are the other side of the world, either America or Australia. So <laughs> when we get to uh, when I get to uh, Australia, I've already got got a, a list of people I need to go and see. <laughs> so so one so one of the things we talked about before was you being a little bit of um uh you know like you, you keeping to yourself and so mm. so it, it, I guess I wonder do you have any anxiety about the the social component of it? I do a bit, but what I, what I found is as soon as I was there with Mariella uh, in a different environment, that anxiety kind of slipped away. Mm. Um, it's more in the, I think it's more kind of when I'm in my, my little room in the UK away from everyone, I think coming out of that room is the biggest anxiety thing. Mm. Um, but once I'm, once I'm out and about and, doing stuff yeah that that kind of goes away especially when i've got someone with me you know supporting me so sure well you know you you have an opportunity um it, this makes me think of like when i was a kid i uh went from one i went from the city school district mm. to the suburb school district and i got to reinvent myself you know and it's kind of an interesting uh, opportunity and some people will waste it and some people will really take advantage of it and and how often in your life as an adult do you have an opportunity like that? But you've got one now, yeah. and and I think it's kind of it makes me smile thinking about it because um, the influence that Mariella has over you and the uh, the um, person that you are when you're with her uh, that's gonna that's gonna be a, a, again a, a, a kind of a new opportunity for you and you're gonna yeah. be and on top of that you're gonna be in a new place with new motivations. Yep. So you can you know you could. Be whatever Daniel you want to be. You could be Australian Daniel, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to it. It's going to be life changing. Yeah, good, man. I'm very happy for you. All right. So we did talk a little bit about um, the passage from the Bible where uh, where Jesus is referred to the the way, the truth, and the life. We had a little chat about that. So I don't know if that if that was the main topic or if, if that. If there was related areas, because you mentioned Bible verses you wanted to talk about, so yeah, I, I suppose it's it's related. So um, I'll tell you what it was. I, I got into a conversation with somebody the uh, the other the other day that was um, apologetic, uh, sympathetic for the uh, Jehovah's Witness religion, which is the religion I used to belong to and left and no longer believe in. 
Um, and we we had a, a good conversation about truth. You know, what is what is a truth? Um, I don't know. I don't know if this is something that other religions do, but Jehovah's Witnesses call themselves the truth. Um, they they say that they have the truth, and that they are the truth. So if you if you are a Jehovah's Witness, they refer to you as being in the truth. Mm. Yeah, um, you're told to only have friends that are in the truth. Um, you are to marry in the truth, which basically just means someone who is a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, if you leave the organisation, uh, you have left the truth you're no longer in the truth you know it to mm. me that sounds very culty you're damn right and it does it to you yeah yes. it's the only so, time i've ever heard the truth so the only thing from of, cults yeah yeah the only thing about that that sounds familiar to me um and i'm i'm not a biblical scholar as much as i love religion so i don't know if this is if it's biblical i think it maybe it is but i remember my folks telling me at some point as a kid that the Bible says you're not supposed to marry somebody that's the phrase was unequally yoked. Does that sound yes, familiar to you? Not in the Lord. Not in the Lord. So something yeah. like that. And my and my parents would use that saying that I should I if when when my time comes to get married, I should be marrying a Christian and not just any Christian, but one belonging to uh, you know, a so a similar enough belief system like here mm. i don't think mm. i don't think it would matter so much if i married a methodist or a lutheran um but if i married a catholic or or an orthodox person exactly. you know, that yeah. would probably be a little bumpy you know yeah if i married if it's i married interesting a- that you interesting you use that that scripture it talks about being unequally yoked and um yeah yeah you're told to marry but only in the lord um this expression in the lord or in the truth in uh, in scripture, uh, we've already mentioned in John, I think it's John 14, was it? 14, 6. Mm-hmm. I've got that right. Where Jesus says, um, I, I am the way, the truth and the life. Now, the early Christians used to refer to themselves in scripture as being in the way. Now, when they when they used that expression that they were in the way, <laughs> they didn't mean they were in the way, you know, get out of my way. <laughs> what they meant was they were in the Lord. And the, the rationale behind that is when you become a Christian, um, anointed by Holy Spirit, uh, born again, adopted by God as a as a uh, a child, you are brought into Christ. So the the idea, the Christ, the expression Christ is often used as, uh, we just think of it as referring to Jesus, but scripturally it doesn't. The Christ refers to Jesus plus everyone that's been um, baptised into him. It's it's an interesting concept. It's um, uh, the Apostle Paul spoke about being baptised into Christ and into his death. Um, the idea being that you actually become a a member of Christ's body. So Jesus becomes the head of the Christ, mm. and the body is the the Christians that have been baptized into it. Um, I don't know what you make of that. That's that's kind of this. It's a very mystical concept that Paul introduced. Yes, you could be members of a body 
um, and and kind of almost like the Christ becomes a a kind of institution made up of many. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you what comes to my mind, and I think it's a bummer that Kyle's not in this conversation because uh, last week we talked about Paul. Hmm. Um, there was there was some talk about what Paul what Paul did to Christianity, which um, <laughs> which it basically is twofold. It's succeeded in spreading it to the world. So he's a huge figure as far as Christianity becoming a world religion is concerned, but also the doctrinal changes that appear in the letters of Paul that don't appear in the gospels. Paul seems to have had his own Christianity. Um, But but the other thing that comes to my mind is um, um, I've heard, and this may be more of like a Gnostic thing, I've heard of people being referred to as well, becoming a a Christ, as though there are, you know, I, don't, I think what does Christ just mean? The the anointed one. Is Christ that what just mean? just means anointed, yeah, anointed, or anointed yes. one, yeah. So the, uh, the idea being, I mean, I, as a witness, I always kind of uh, believed that there there wasn't many Christs. There was one Christ, but that right. Christ was made up of many. Okay, so that that's kind of an unusual idea. Um, I, as far as like you know my Protestant or, or evangelical background goes, but I but I have heard uh, people referred to as becoming a Christ as though it's a title. Christ is a title. Jesus the Christ, and it reminds me of Buddhism. It reminds me of you have the Buddha, but it's possible for anybody to become a Buddha, That's right? It. So yeah, you could hood. become yeah. a Christ, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, very, very similar sort of idea to that. I mean, the where where the Apostle Paul got the idea from, if you read the accounts, um, the nation of Israel when they when they left uh, Egypt under the uh, under the leadership of Moses, when Moses led the Israelites through the uh, the Red Sea, you know, with the waters either side, the Apostle Paul referred to that as being like a baptism. The entire nation, consisting of some three million people, they estimate, were baptized into Moses, which meant that from that point on, God could deal with just Moses. When he wanted to deal with the nation of Israel, it was Moses that he did it through. Moses was their mediator. Um, and that's kind of the, the sort of figurative language that Paul uses when he talks about um, Christians being baptized into the Christ and into the death of Christ. It's basically like you piggyback off of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, sure. Jesus Jesus lived, died, was resurrected and glorified. And if you if you're if you become one with the Christ, you basically benefit from that. You know, mm. you you live, die, are resurrected and glorified. It's a very well, and you're right when when you say that the apostle paul basically changed what was a very simple very simple christianity with jesus and introduced basically introduced a religion that's how i how i see it um and the religion that the apostle paul built was a kind of mishmash of old testament beliefs jewish because he was a pharisee remember he was educated at the feet of gamaliel wasn't he the famous Pharisee. It's mm. almost like he took the, the old Jewish uh, testament and kind of mashed that up with the idea of a Jesus, a mediator, a savior. Mm. So what you get with the Apostle Paul is like a, a quite a legalistic form of Christianity. Interesting. Yes. 
lots yeah. of rules, lots of regulations, lots of things that you're allowed to do and not allowed to do. And, you know, I just I always find it interesting that the Old Testament speaks, for example, of homosexuality as being an abomination. And so does the Apostle Paul. It's an abomination. Mm, and he deserved to be, yeah. you know, smitten by the Lord. But Jesus never mentioned homosexuality, not once. That's it. That's that's interesting, you know, because it there's a lot of this stuff that I don't understand well. But I know that in order, I know that Christianity became uh, Hellenized, especially if you look at the Gospel of John compared to the Mm -hmm. other Gospels. You see, you see this sort of more traditional Jewish story being told in the Gospels, Mm -hmm. and then you get to John, and you have this. You have something that's much more like Greek philosophy. You and do. So, I mean, straight straight from the get go, uh, John one one, where it starts talking about the logos or the logic. You know, yes. the, um, that was. A, I mean, that's both a that's both a Hebrew Jewish um, idea. The idea that God has a has a memra in the in the Old Testament. It's referred to as the memra or the wisdom of God. Um, presented as if it's a person, but it's not really a person. It's the purpose of God, mm. the will of God, the desires of God. But uh, I suppose you, I suppose you could say the manifestations of God. Mm. You know? Yes. And then you get to John one verse one, and it talks about this God that is manifest in the world um, as the Word of God, the expression mm. of God. Quite interesting, because you know Jehovah's Witnesses when they read John one one in the in the beginning the Word was with God in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Yes, they actually changed that to read in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was a God, <laughs> and they they actually they actually render it along the lines that Jesus had a pre-human existence as a separate individual to God. And before before he came to the earth and became the Christ, he was actually a God in his in his own right. He wasn't the God, but he was a God. Is that is that is that related with to the idea of um Jesus as the Archangel Michael? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they also say that Jesus is Mark, uh, Archangel Michael, which has no no basis in scripture whatsoever. That, that was my next question. Where does that come from? It's just another one of those very strange ideas that the witnesses have got. I mean, they've chopped and changed things a lot over the years. Um, I mean, years ago, Michael wasn't the archangel. That that was something that they introduced a bit later. Um, the truth, the truth changes then, doesn't it? It does. I mean, it, it, from a this this is the point I want to get to in a moment. That as far as Jehovah's Witnesses are concerned, truth, what they call truth, is constantly changing. I mean, just to give you an example, in Revelation it talks about the uh, the angel called Abaddon, A B B A D O N. I think it is Abaddon, the destroyer. Mm. And uh, in Scripture, uh, in in the past, the witnesses years ago used to say that that was Satan, the devil. Which which kind of fits, I suppose, doesn't it? But nowadays they teach that that is Jesus, and it it, it just it <laughs> how how you can get from this is Satan to this is Jesus is just uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, hey, this is this brings up something, and I'm not really sure where this comes from, but you tell me if you if you know. Hmm. Um, there's this idea in Christian theology somewhere that says Jesus and Lucifer are brothers yeah and it's yeah, almost well, like uh, jehovah's witnesses would agree with that oh okay okay mm-hmm. 
Do you know where that comes from? Where do they get that from? From, from the idea, so from the idea that uh, Jesus Christ, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, before he became Jesus Christ, was the word, an angel in heaven that God had created before all the other angels. And uh, the angel that became Satan was also an angel created by uh, God. I see. Um, along with millions of other angels, all referred to as the sons of God in uh, in the hebrew literature so the idea is that jesus was uh, you know he was the first angel he was the most important angel of all the angels but he was just an angel mm. and then uh, then they say that uh, when god needed someone to die for humankind he uh, he basically uh, compressed or zipped <laughs> zipped uh, jesus up into uh, a little tiny uh, speck of matter and inserted him into mary's womb mm. <laughs> and then he was born as as jesus so you know when um when uh, the devil was tempting jesus in the wilderness and uh, telling him to turn stones into bread and throw himself off you know high places and all this mm. sort of thing the idea is that jesus would have known that that lucifer that devil angel Oh. Because he'd, he'd had a pre-human existence for possibly billions of years with that angel. Um, you know, the, the thing the thing is, Chris, on on face value, um, you can you can pick verses from Scripture to support all these little ideas that, that I'm mentioning here. If you just take things out of context, if you sure. just pick one verse, you know, you can come up with an idea. You can string a series of ideas together. So you've got this kind of biblical narrative or spiritual narrative. And any uh, any of those ideas in the narrative, you can pull a scripture out. Says, eh, see, look, it says it there. But the problem is when you sit down and read the Bible from cover to cover without any bias and without trying to make it fit into a predetermined narrative, you come up with something different and that that is that's what happened with me <laughs> as i read the bible in context not just cherry picking verses i found a lot of verses that would suggest other other interpretations so uh, that's that's why i no longer believe so my my mind is going in a million different directions yeah, I, yeah it's I, a did, big I didn't want to I do want to tell you one thing that's unrelated, but before I forget, I want to, I just want to admit this to somebody, and I think you're a good person to admit it to. Um, so I had lots of struggles when I was going through my own like religious exploration, mm -hmm. um, going going back to a kid and questioning things for the first time. And um, Holy Scripture is one of those things that I I think is sort of a hard to believe idea that that there might be a, a message or a revelation or a burning bush or a voice on the top of a mountain or something like that, 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 that transcribes the will of God or the voice of God or something to human beings. I always found that sort of a miracle to be hard to believe. Um, so holy books to me, I, I had this suspicion that they're written by human beings, that there's a lot of speculation that, that so much of it is not holy or divine. And, and, you know, mm -hmm. I shouldn't consider it that way. Um, and then as I got more into it and I got more sophisticated in my thinking, I, I began to think that something like the book of Genesis that talks about the creation of the world, that that's something that 
I have a hard time believing isn't isn't inspired. Whether it mm-hmm. comes from imagination doesn't matter to me. The yep. idea the idea that um, we come up with this creative and poetic and beautiful imagery and words to go along with the idea that the cosmos didn't exist and then suddenly did to mm-hmm. explain creation. Mm-hmm. And I thought I thought that was beautiful. And uh, I wasn't sure what else in the Bible I would keep if I if I was trying to, if I was the one yeah, yeah. tasked to determine what was what was divine and what wasn't, um, and this is what I want to admit to you. Um, I think I told you before, but when I had my mystical psychedelic mystical experience, I was writing on my phone. I was typing notes on my phone hmm. the whole time. The whole time I was having that experience because I was having all these en- waves of enlightening thoughts and ideas hmm. and answers pouring, and I was. I was trying to capture it, you know, typing on my phone, typing on my phone. I, I, I typed on my phone for like two hours straight through, the, through this experience. And I've gone back and I've reread that many times and sometimes certain parts of it anyway. When I read it, I will feel little tremors of the way I mm. felt when I wrote it. And um, so what I want to admit to here is that I think at least parts of what I wrote that day our our divine scripture. Absolutely. I would agree. I would agree. (laughs) I would totally agree with you there because I I had exactly the same thing. Uh, But in 2006, I, uh, it almost felt like a sort of channeling of uh, some sort of inspired message (laughs) that I wrote down and I read it back and, you know, it gives me goosebumps when I read it back because I wouldn't have just written that um, any old day, you know, exactly. It was a flow of, see, this this is this is what I was trying to explain to this person about when it comes to uh, the Bible and and truth and so forth. And I just if I can just backtrack a little yes. bit and try and sort of tie Please. all this together. So so their argument was that I I come onto my podcast and I say Jehovah's Witnesses are not the truth. Okay, they're not the truth. And these are the reasons why Jehovah's Witnesses are not the truth, right? Number one, Jesus said he was the truth, not an organization, Jesus. And then the truth doesn't change, you know? Um, You can't be the truth if you're teaching falsehoods. And if you teach something and then stop teaching it and completely change it and say, Actually, now we now the truth is this, and now the truth is this. That means that all those previous truths, in inverted commas, were actually falsehoods. And truth and falsehood are not good bedfellows. They don't work together. If you've got an organization or a religion that teaches something that is false, even if, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt for a moment, they were sincere, you cannot label that organization the truth. You just can't. Correct. You can't. It just does not work. Now, this person, like many JW apologetics, then starts to try and justify things. So the first thing they say is, well, when we say the truth, we don't mean the truth as in true, true. We just mean true, but not true, true. And I'm like, <laughs> God, <laughs> this is doing my head in. All right. You know, either it's true or it's not true. You can't have it both ways. That's no. The then then comes the argument you know well the big things you know we've always been right on you know there's a god jesus you know the death of jesus to save people 
heaven, Armageddon, all these sort of things. I'm like, yep, 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 good, okay. The Bible actually does, the Bible actually does talk about those things, but that doesn't make you unique. There's, the, you know, most Christian religions will teach God, Jesus, Armageddon, heaven, you know, resurrection, all those. Sort of, it doesn't make you unique. Um, and here's the one that really got me. Just see if you can figure out, because I'm still trying to wrap my head around this one. They said, what you do on your podcast is you come on and you say, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are not the truth because what they teach doesn't match up with the Bible. Okay, right, good. Okay, I'd, I have done that. I do do that. But then he says, what you then do is say that, you, well, you don't believe the Bible anyway. So by saying you don't believe the Bible anyway, or don't believe the Bible in its entirety anyway, what you've just done is you've just shot your argument to bits. Mm. And I kind of see where he's coming from, but I, <laughs> I disagree. And I don't know if you can see what I mean by this. What I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I'm attacking this on two prongs. In the first place, I'm saying if the Bible is true, let's just suppose it is true in, in, in its entirety for a moment, then Jehovah's Witnesses are not the truth because their beliefs do not match that, um, that kind of measuring stick of truth. Yeah, what they teach does not marry up with the Bible. It's very easy to prove that if you do the research. Yep. But then I'm coming from it from a different angle, and I'm saying even if the Bible um, – even if Jehovah's Witnesses are following the Bible, I don't think the Bible is a very good moral, um, ethical measuring stick to be actually working to. Yep. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually coming from it from two two angles here. No, does no, that I, make I, any sense? Because I thought yeah, that made sense. Of course it does. Of course it does. The, mm. So what you're, what you're saying is if the JW Church bases their authority on the Bible, but they are, aren't consistent with that authority, then they undermine themselves. And that, that argument stands on its own. That nothing, argument nothing stands wrong on with its that. own. Yeah. Yes. And then my second argument, the argument that the Bible is not a moral, moral ethical book to actually live your life by, um, in its entirety, and I'll get to that a little bit in a moment, <laughs> that was a response to the idea that the Bible, okay, whether it's true or not, you can't criticise Jehovah's Witnesses because at the end of the day, they're just trying to live by the Bible. So you can't criticise Jehovah's Witnesses. They're just trying to live by the Bible. And you say you don't believe the Bible, but that's okay. Jehovah's Witnesses do, and they're just trying to live by it. Now, my argument to that, my, my response to that was... <laughs> You can't criticise Jehovah's Witnesses because they're living by the Bible. That would be true if the Bible was a benign book. Okay? Right. Just as this is a really rubbish illustration, but let's just say, for example, that Jehovah's Witnesses' sacred book was a, a book about fairies. All right? And this book about fairies says that God is a fairy. All right? God's a beautiful fairy. And every Sunday we want you to dress up as fairies and float around the garden. All right. Now, that, that might be mental. It might be crazy. It might not be true. But I don't think anyone would would say that was particularly damaging. Sure. You know, nobody's getting hurt. They're all enjoying themselves dressed up as fairies floating around <laughs> the garden. But if I was to then say to you, right, this religion, its sacred book is Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. OK, 
Mm-hmm. And you can't criticise Jehovah's Witnesses <laughs> because they're just trying to live by Mein Kampf, by Adolf Hitler. You know, you can't criticise them. They're, they're, they're very sincere. They're following a book by Adolf Hitler that they believe is true. Now, I would argue against that. I'd immediately say, yeah, I am going to criticise them because that book on its own merit is a bad book. I, I now, I'm, not, I'm not saying, right, is is a controversial one. I'm not saying that Hitler didn't have some good ideas. He might well have done. He was a brilliant architect, wasn't he? Some of the architectural ideas he came up with. People don't necessarily rate his art, but, you know, he, he was an artist. He, yep. You can't deny he was a good politician. Right. But he was immoral. Right. You know? Now, I'm not going to write off the entire person of Hitler as being completely bad, 100% bad and immoral, because I'm sure, I'm sure like any other human, you know, he had loving relationships and I'm sure he could be kind and gentle when he wanted Mm. to be. And, but that was, that was, that was sort of living alongside this monster. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see when I see the Bible. I see some beautiful bits in the Bible, Mm. which at the end of the day is not just a book. It's a collection of books. It's a library of books. Right. I even take I even take individual books and I see some beautiful things in in an individual book in the Bible. But then in the same book, I see some horrendously immoral, unethical things. Mm. And to just say, well, you know, that was that was then. No, that's no. My moral and ethical standards are now. Yes. And I'm not going to take a Bronze Age book. If indeed it's even that old. And say, well, you know, things like slavery and genocide, you know, killing everybody in the land of Canaan in order to get the land. Right. Striking someone down because he collected wood on the Sabbath or when you go, when a soldier goes into the land, you know, he kills all the the men, women, children, even the donkeys. But he will he's allowed to save the young virgins for himself. Against their that's, will, basically. That's suspect, it. isn't it? It's suspect. <laughs> I look at that, you know, um, um, but but what happens is, what the witnesses do, and I think a lot of Bible believers do this, <clears throat> they take the entire Bible, lock, stock and barrel, and they start off with this idea that God is love, God is right, God is just. So when they read something that goes against that idea, you know, for example, Jephthah prays to God and says, if you let me win this battle, the first Personal first first thing that comes out of the door to me, I'll burn them as a sacrifice. Yeah. People will read that and go, well, that doesn't fit with my idea that God is just and good and kind and right. So when it says that Jephthah offered her as a burnt sacrifice, it can't mean that. Mm. Can't mean that. It must mean so. Oh, it's figurative. What it means is he sent her to worship at the temple for the rest of her life. Um. <laughs> can, can you see what I mean? It's like oh. this. It's kind of like what they what they do is they work through this. But every time they come across a problem verse, they go through these mental gymnastics to make it fit their predetermined narrative. Yes. Rather than saying, "Hang on a minute," either God is a monster, or, and I think this is more likely, that verse is not inspired by God. That yes. verse is a man-made verse in amongst a load of inspired writings. Yes. I agree with that. I, mm. I, <clears throat> Sorry, I was getting a bit on my high horse. Here, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I agree with that. Uh, but there's a lot. There's a lot there. 
Um, Unpack it for me. Come on, you're good at this. <laughs> well, I do. I do think that there's a lot of the Bible that I will that I I have a hard time calling divine. Part of it is so much of the histories that's included in the Bible because I I for the life of me can't understand why learning about the history of the Jewish people is even though there's miracles and things in there that are supposed to give you evidence of God working in the world and all that stuff. I just don't understand how reading the book of Kings or judges or something is numbers or numbers. Yeah. I just can't, I can't understand how that, how that has got any spiritual significance, Uh, especially beyond if you're not, if you're not Jewish and that history doesn't belong to you, like what relevance does that have? Let alone. What what Jehovah's witnesses would say is number one, it shows that God cares about individuals because he, you know, he numbered them all. And number two, (laughs) it helped him to preserve a, uh, a bloodline that led to uh, Jesus. So, the, so you know, numbers, although it's a bit of a hard, hard book to wade through and might not particularly serve any purpose to us now, back in the day it did because, you know, when Jesus came on the scene, they were able to say, yes, he is from the, he is from the line of David because we can trace it back. Yeah, that, that legitimizes <laughs> the idea of Jesus as Messiah to the Jews. But does it, but does it legitimize Jesus as a as a divinity no. to anyone else like no. and, and and the jews don't even accept that you know by and large I don't, <laughs> that's, I, now that's true and also also if you read read the books uh, the the torah of moses supposedly i'd like to get to that in a minute if i may the the torah of moses um refers to other books it refers to the book of the wars of jehovah or yahweh these are other books that were supposedly written and disappeared they, they're no longer available, you know. Sometimes, it, sometimes you think. Sometimes I think, you know, the books that are in the Bible, they're only there because they're the ones that survived. <laughs> That's true. So yeah. I've got a bookshelf to my right, and mm. on the book on the bookshelf I have a collection of. There's three of them. There's a book, a book a compilation called the Apocrypha. Mm-hmm. There's, yep. there's there's one called the Lost Books of the Bible and the Forgotten Books of Eden. Yeah. And then underneath that is the complete Dead Sea Scrolls in the Nag Hammadi Library, and. If you take the size of those books and you compare them to the Bible, to the accepted traditional King James Bible, there are three times as many pages mm-hmm. yeah. than the whole Bible. And these are all books that at one point were considered to be divine, divinely inspired. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, most, most Protestant religions, uh, Christian religions these days, they break the Bible up into 66 books, don't they? You're 66 books. If you're a Catholic, it's um, more like 77, is it? Something yeah, there's like more. Yep. Yeah. And if uh, if you belong to the uh, one of the Ethiopian Christian churches, uh, it's something like 84 books. Mm. So you know what is inspired, what should be kept in, what should not be kept in. You know what? What? How, how do? How does the Catholic Church's uh, apocryphal books get ditched by? Um, Jehovah's Witnesses and other Protestant style religions, you know, it's a good, it's a good question. It's just, see, I, I, I spent a long, long time thinking about this. There's one thing that always bothered me, always bothered me. And that was that if you're looking, you've, you've just mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and add little sections of Isaiah in those, those manuscripts that they found were a thousand years earlier mm. than anything they already had. Right. Okay. But here's the rub. 
we still don't have any Old Testament manuscripts earlier than about 300 BC. That interesting. Right? So up to the up to the um, Dead Sea Scrolls, we only had books up to about 700 AD uh, mm. manuscripts that were dated from 700 AD. Now all of a sudden we've got books manuscripts that are 300 BC. Mm-hmm. And those Dead Sea Scrolls, like you say, they didn't just include books that are of what is accepted as the inspired scriptures. They also ex- they also had books that were not accepted as inspired scriptures. Who gets to decide that? What what used to really – you know, sometimes you just get an idea in the back of your head that you think, yes, this, this doesn't seem right. There's something not right here. Why have we only got books, date, uh, manuscripts dating back to 300 BC, when – Supposedly, Moses wrote the Torah in around about 1500 BC. So the now, question, I've got, a, I've got a really simple answer for that. But go on, what, what do you think? Well, you know, you know what the archaeologists and the anthropologists will say that it, it was an oral tradition that they kept <laughs> alive for you know hundreds of years. That's what yeah. they say. Yeah. Well, this, this is what I'm thinking. Okay, so. Let me let me just run this past you. When when you read the Old Testament, it's got all these stories, like you say, the Genesis account. It's got things about the, uh, a flood. It's got things about a Tower of Babel. Mm-hmm. It's got all these like miracles of Red Seas and burning bushes and prophets and all this sort of thing going on. It's all very spectacular. Yes. <laughs> and I don't know. It's it's also sort of interspersed with things that seem very babylonian oh yes all right i mean we've discussed before that the old testament sort of traces israelites origins particularly back to abraham and sarah mm-hmm. um from ur from ur mm-hmm. <laughs> which is babylonian yes and it's very interesting if you just go a little bit further over to the east on that map you start reaching india mm. Mm. where uh, there is Brahma and uh, his his wife that was Sarah, I believe, or yes. Sarai or something like that. Yep, yeah, you told me about that. Yes, I can't mm-hmm. remember the pronunciation. So my ideas come in there. In the, middle of, in the middle of the whole of the Old Testament, just out of the blue for some reason, you suddenly get this story about a guy called Job who was the greatest of the Orientals. And they say, oh, Moses wrote that as well. How the hell did Moses know about <laughs> Job, you know? Yeah. I think I think the really simple explanation for this is that the Old Testament was written in 300 BC. Mm-hmm. The Jews, yeah, okay, the Jews were a nation that were taken into Babylonian exile. We know that. We know that. That's historically accurate. But I think the the stories of their history were written down in the post-babylonian area so your era so you're talking uh you're talking persian you're going to get some persian influence in there you're going to get some babylonian influence in there and you're even going to get a bit of greek in there because when you get to the books of daniel for example daniel starts giving all these prophecies that were supposedly way before 300 bc (laughs) about uh Babylon would be succeeded by Medo-Persia, and Medo-Persia would be succeeded by Greece. Mm. All right, and then Medo-Persia would be uh, Greece rather would be succeeded by 
uh, a political power represented by a beast that was uh, don't know who it is. He doesn't name the next beast. He doesn't name Rome. Mm. Just seems a little bit fortuitous that <laughs> he's able to name Babylon, Medo, Persia, and Greece, but not Rome in advance. That's interesting, isn't and it? And I would say that's because Daniel never wrote that. It was written by some guy in 300 BC. Yep. It was written after the Greeks, it during written, the Greeks, maybe, when the Greek, before when the, the Romans. The, before the Romans ever came on the scene. So, and it's it's like that would then that would then explain why you've got all these wonderfully, you know, spectacular, miraculous stories about you know, the creation of heavens and earth and floods and all the rest of it, because all of those stories are included in Babylonian and Sumerian uh, stories. Yes. So there's you know, a I think there is a thread of truth running through that. There is a thread of truth running through that. Yes. But the Bible doesn't have the monopoly on it. I think you're right. I mean, I think there's no, there's no doubt that when you look at um, – the book of Genesis, and this is something mm. I've talked about many times, uh, maybe you and I have talked about before, but the Babylonian creation myth, it's called the Enuma Elish. Mm-hmm. You know more about this than I do. Yeah, that, that mm. story is, um, I mean, there's no arguing that the biblical creation myth is related to it because in the Hebrew, the word for the, word for the chaos that, mm. that the universe was brought from is called Tehom. And uh, Tehom is a direct is a derivate from the goddess Tiamat, the Babylonian goddess of chaos, the dragon mm-hmm. of chaos. So there's no there's no doubt that and, you know, even the the ideas of the um, the world being created by separation, even that comes mm-hmm. from the the Babylonian story, which says that Apsu, the god of freshwater, and Tiamat, the goddess of saltwater, were separated to create the the cosmos. So all of that comes from the Babylonian story. There's no doubt. And then there's also no doubt at all that the flood story, the Noah flood story, um, w- comes directly from uh, the Gilgamesh epic and epic the uh, Gilgamesh, yeah, yeah, the uh, the uh, Atrahasis is, is the name that they used for them. So there's there's no doubt that that is related. But here's the thing that comes to my mind that might be a wrench in this a little, is that you know we were talking earlier about the Jehovah's Witnesses doing some post hoc rationalization and changing things to to mean something that's more consistent with the rest of their ideas. Well, this happened in Judaism and it, mm-hmm. and it, hap- it happened with the Talmud, right? So mm-hmm. the, the exactly. Jews, mm-hmm. the rabbis wrote the Talmud to explain all the things in the Bible that needed to be explained or explained away. And they wrote that in Babylon. So there's a Babylonian mm-hmm. Talmud. So yep. that was constructed during a time when the Jews were, were captive there. So is it possible that it was an oral tradition? Now, the Semitic people obviously are related. And you mentioned Abraham goes back to goes back to Ur anyway. So is it possible that there was an oral tradition among the group of Semites that became the Jews that was already deeply associated with the other Semitic groups there that had their own religions? And they were influenced by the ones that they encountered when they were captive in Babylon. Hmm. All of that. I think that's it. Yeah. All of all of that being an oral tradition until they got to Babylon, and then they had and then they began to write it down. Then I start writing it down, and then you yep. get these additions, you know, like I said about the Book of Daniel, 
probably written after the Babylonian period. You know, so I think you're, I think you're in the right ballpark there. I, I definitely, I definitely would go with that. I think. You see, the thing is, these oral traditions about you know creation and uh, the the flood. Interesting one as well, the Tower of Babel. You know, that was again Babylonian in the Babylonian area. You know, it's basically they're basically saying that after the uh, after the flood, people basically settled in the plains of Shinar, which is which was in the Babylonian area, and then God mm. confused their languages and spread them out. What you're reading in what you're reading in the Jewish literature is not a Jewish story. What you're reading is a Babylonian story mm. that predated the Jewish religion and the Jewish people, and then yeah. kind of like you say, it would oral tradition it's going to be this is not going to be local this is going to be a worldwide oral tradition people are going to know it all over the world and they're going to put their own little spin on it yep absolutely and when eventually you decide see the, the, the one thing i did find out was that the persians were unlike the babylonians who never released their uh, captives the um the Medes and the Persians were very big on repatriating people to their homeland. Mm. So they very much were keen of liberating the uh, the people from Babylonian control and letting them go back to Israel. But there was a condition, and the condition was that anyone that was released back to their their homeland had to demonstrate that they had a national identity in place a national history a set of laws now if, if all you've got is, is a load of oral traditions <laughs> that's not great is it you go before no. the king of king of media or persia and he says so what have you got for us we're going to let you go but you know let's see the paperwork <laughs> <laughs> uh well we haven't we've just got all these stories that all our rabbis have been telling over the years right well that's not good enough it needs to be in writing okay we'll get our rabbis on it so they start writing it all down, and you end up with, uh, you know, the uh, the Torah and the, the other Torah. books. Mm. Yes, that's and funny the, because and the that, other books would have been added to it later. And that's exactly what the Torah provides. It provides the genealogy. It provides the creation story, the basis of the religion. It provides everything that the king needed to satisfy mm. that requirement. See, I, I, would, I would I would bet, and I'd I'd like to be proved wrong on this because it would I would have to adjust my view somewhat. You, you mentioned that the Talmud made reference to the stories that are in, say, the Torah. Yes. But I'm guessing the Talmud makes no reference to the book of Daniel. That's a, that's a good question. I don't know. I'd have to look. It's a good question. And if it does, it was probably a later addition to the Talmud. Because mm. I'm guessing that the, the book of Daniel wasn't written until Greek times. Interesting. Daniel, I want to I want to circle back, if you don't mind, mm. I want to circle back to this earlier topic you brought up about Christ and, and being belonging to the body of Christ, the mystical mm. body of Christ. So this is something that I first of all, when you when you use the word mystical to describe that earlier, I hadn't mm. really considered that before, but I, it makes complete sense. And I actually kind of like it more than I expected to when you put it that way. Oh, it's a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> I, like it, I like it as well. <laughs> <laughs> so the the idea that we can participate in whatever it is Christ is, it's not just the person of Jesus, but the greater community of enlightened or anointed, whatever that might mean, mm. and that there's this sort of mystical oneness that that shows up. Some some you know like it could come straight from the Upanishads. 
there, there's, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a couple of things about this that I never understood that seem to be related. And let, so let me hear what you think of this. I used to listen to AM Catholic radio in the morning when I was driving to work because mm-hmm. I like to hear the Catholic priests take questions from people and talk about the, you know, religious subjects. And uh, they would use language that I didn't understand because I'm not Catholic. And some of it would be like, I was trying to write down some of this stuff. Um, it would be they would they would talk about the mystical body of Christ. They would talk about the church as the bridegroom of Jesus, or um, the bride of Jesus. Yeah, the, yeah, the bride of Jesus. And so there was the the church, the body of the church, the body of Christ. Christ and the church is husband and wife. That's These it. sort of I- ideas that I, it's still really kind of baffling to me. So how do you, how do you make sense of that? What is the Jehovah Witness yeah, position? Okay. Yeah. So so again, I think this this you've got to come back to the Genesis account where you've got the supposed creation of a single man called Adam, who is then. Um, the woman is taken from the man and then God brings the woman to the man and they become one flesh. Mm. He says she is bone of my bones, which in Hebrew literally means self beside myself, <laughs> flesh of my flesh. This one I shall call woman because from man she was taken. There's this, this sort of idea that man and woman were one, you know, especially if they got married and, and were intimate together, they became one flesh. Now, Jesus himself referred often to his followers as being, uh, well, he referred to himself as being the bridegroom um, to, to kind of sort of give this this idea of intimacy between himself and his followers. And then you've got the Apostle Paul takes this one step further because in Ephesians, I believe it's Ephesians 6, um, 5 and 6, I believe, he's talking all about how um, and women – Today may not like this very much. Uh, it talks about the man being the head of the woman, the same way as the uh, the head of the man is Christ and the head of the Christ is God. It's sort of this sort of hi- hierarchy of uh, headshipness, you know, mm. and you sort of fit somewhere in that with kids right at the bottom having to be obedient to their parents. Um, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 and 6 talks all about marriage and how, you know, women should respect their husbands and husbands should love their their wives just as the Christ loved the congregation. You know, reference back there to Christ viewing the congregation as his, as his bride. And then at the end of it all, <laughs> after talking all about marriage for ages, the Apostle Paul says, actually, I'm not talking about marriage at all. I'm not talking about men and women. I'm actually talking about Christ and the congregation. That's what my story is all about. And then uh, the Apostle John, if he wrote Revelation, then has similar symbology, doesn't it? You know, it talks about uh, the marriage of the Lamb Mm. occurring in heaven, you know. Uh, So Christians and Jehovah's Witnesses even have this idea that anointed Christians at some point will be taken to heaven. And will marry, marry Jesus. I mean, the Catholics actually, you know, they're nuns. They actually view themselves as married to Jesus, don't You're they? You're right. Yeah, they do. Mm. So I assume this is supposed to be mm. a symbolic understanding of um, becoming oneness. one. You know, one, mm. one yeah, flesh. Oneness. Oneness. You see, uh, I think it's uh, First Peter. I think it's First Peter. There's a little reference in Peter that's that says uh, referring to again anointed Christians that are 
destined for heaven. It says, uh, we do not know what we will be like yet, but when we meet him, we know we shall be like him, referring to Jesus. And then it says, and we shall become sharers in divine nature. Mm. So there's this this idea that when you get to heaven, I don't know. In, in some scriptures, you sort of it almost seems like you still maintain your individuality, but there's all, also this sort of idea that you become almost like a drop in an ocean mm. when you get there. Yes, you become not just like Jesus; you become like God Himself. You become immortal, deathless. Yes, you know. <laughs> I I agree. I. I I like the drop in the ocean idea. That's much mm. the way I view it. Um, it, and it, it, it has that parallel in Hinduism about the, in, in the Upanishads about Brahman mm. and Atman. It's and it's fair, not, this is the thing. It's not unique, is it? Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. So even the, um, in, uh, in Hinduism, you have the idea of, uh, Naguna Brahman. And Saguna Brahman. So Naguna Brahman is God or or source or whatever we want to call it without attributes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. unmanifest, unchangeable, um, without form, without thought, without consciousness, out of space, out of time. Just the the is the I am. That's the Naguna Brahman. Yes. And then you have the idea of the Saguna Brahman, which is a manifestation of the I am, fractal, fragmented, all the all the consciousnesses, spirit and human, the universe, all the worlds, the planets, everything that, that makes up our reality is Saguna Brahman, Brahman manifest. I'll see a parallel in that again when you, you, know, you just come back to John 1 verse 1. God is Naguna Brahman, the word is Saguna Brahman. Mm-hmm. The word man is is the, the word is Brahman manifest. I like you know, that. Through through the word that became Jesus, and then the whole of creation, if they want to, can then become one with Jesus and find their way back to that that divine nature again. So there's a lot of parallels between mm, early the early Christ, early Christians and the Jewish tradition with the with the um, Hindu tradition, especially the one that comes from the Upanishads, um, and Taoism. And there's a, a phrase from the Tao Te Ching that I read just yesterday that comes to mind when you're talking about um, God with attributes and God without attributes. Um, in the book, the Tao Te Ching, they say, um, Lao Tzu, the guy that wrote it, or Lao Tzu, however you say it, he says, there's a, it's, a, it's a longer passage, but the, the, the good bit is, um, being comes from non-being, and so it has to. Yeah. So, so <laughs> yeah. be, being is the is Brahma with attributes. Being is is the world that we find ourselves in and ourselves included. Non-being is God without attributes. Being comes from non-being. You know, it's, it's, it's very much. It's very much a. I was trying to explain this to um, this person. It's very much a. It's a concept you have to grasp that if if non-being can exist Mm. by definition being can exist Mm. and if something can exist it will exist (laughs) at some point there's um i think the professor brian cox has actually written a book his quantum mechanics book i I believe 
about the universe and matter and what have you. And it's entitled something like um, anything that anything that can exist will exist, or anything that can be will be. <laughs> yeah, I got to I got to get that book because that sounds right up my alley. Well, I've just downloaded it. I'm going to start reading it soon. And yeah, see what okay. it's all, all about. Yeah. But it's it's. It, <sighs> This this is why this is why I, I what I'm tending to do these days is I take I take a sacred book, be it the Bible or the Upanishads or any other sacred book, I read it and I pro I don't approach it with the idea this book is inspired and therefore everything is correct in it. Everything is. Um I will approach it along the lines um I don't know if it if it is true or not. And I'll read it, and if anything doesn't sit right, and by the end of reading it, it's not cleared up, I'll put that to one side. I'll say that doesn't feel right. It it doesn't have that divine – you spoke about your own writings as having that sort of divine flavour to it. Yes. If it doesn't have it, I'll put it to one side. And this is why, even though I've put aside quite large chunks of the Bible as as, nothing more than sort of man-made literature – I've still retained quite a lot of the Bible and I haven't found myself in a position where I see a need to jettison Jesus from the equation. Sure. Now, I'm not sure whether Jesus walked on water, raised the dead, or whether he manipulated physics to be able to do those things or whether he manipulated the minds of people. So maybe that maybe they thought they'd seen a resurrection or th- seen him walk on water, or whether that was just added later. You know, the same way as like the Buddha is supposed to have been able to duplicate himself and stuff like that. You know, was that true or was that added later? I would suspect probably added later. Right. Yeah. But I'm I'm not prepared to drop Jesus as he was certainly a rabbi. He was certainly a brilliant teacher. He had some great ideas. And I think he was spiritually awake. I agree. I agree. But I also think I also think ones like you know Laos, Lao and Buddha and others have written equally inspiring works and done equally inspiring things. You know. Correct. And I think there's you know what of course already, but the story of the Buddha uh, meditating under the the uh, mm. tree and bec- and reaching his enlightened state. There's a story about the gods because, of course, um, just like just like Jesus was a Jew, uh, Buddha was a Hindu, and so so the Hindu gods were were trying to prevent him from reaching Nirvana um, when it started to happen. So they manifested themselves, and there's art you can see these images of Buddha meditating, you know, serenely under the tree, and there's all these sort of like dream images floating above him of angry gods trying to keep him from from ascending. <clears throat> And when he does, when he does, it, it, what it shows him is that whatever he is is greater even than the gods. That even with all of the divine power trying to stop him, nothing could stop him. So he was greater even than the gods. That story, what what it symbolizes to me is basically identical to the story of Jesus. So you, what you've got here is, yep. what you got here is a. a well, God made flesh. You've got you've got the creator of the world, you know, incarnated into a human being. And that symbol shows us that we're more than mortal, 
that we're we're more than meets the eye. That we have greater, a higher self. Yeah. We have a higher we have a higher self. And as as Christians, I think it's like subliminal how we sit in the pews at church, and while we're listening to the to the preacher preach. We're staring at the cross behind him on the altar and, you know, Jesus up on the cross. We're constantly meditating on this image of of the resurrection. And what that's supposed to tell us is that just as Jesus was was God, was the force that created the cosmos, made flesh. That's what the cosmos is. It's it, Jesus is an example of what you are. You are also the cosmos made flesh. The cosmos is God made material just like you and so i think that the message of buddhism and christianity is far closer than people give credit absolutely i mean i was watching a video the other day of uh, an advaitist teacher so we're now talking a particular branch of hindu philosophy that's not always that popular even with hindus Uh, advaitism is you know this idea of non-duality um that there is only one, there is only one thing, and that one thing is Brahman, and Brahman is either manifest or not manifest yep. at any given time. Um, but this this Advaitist teacher was actually likening Advaitism to Buddhism and saying that although they're coming from different angles and the, the, the kind of teachings and the stories that you tell within Buddhism and Advaitism and you could add Christianity to it as well, ultimately it's arriving at the same conclusion. And the conclusion is that what we think we are is an illusion. Yes. That doesn't mean it doesn't mean an illusion doesn't mean we're not real. What it means is we're not what we seem. Mm. Yeah, we're not what yes. we seem. And I think when yes. you're sitting there in church looking at a cross and contemplating death, I think you're knocking on the door of some truth there because I've been thinking about death recently. <laughs> a bit depressing, <laughs> but. You see, the thing is, death is always viewed as this this enemy. The scriptures talk about, Bible talks about it as an enemy with a sting, you know, and I get that because when someone you love dies, you feel disconnected to them. You know, they're gone. You you can't just sort of pop around and have a cup of tea with them anymore. They're not there. And people resist death or try to resist death at, at all all extremes, don't they? Do anything to try and avoid death. But, you know, when you when you see someone die with dignity or particularly for a cause, you know, when I'm, I'm quite big on um, historical war movies, you know, if one man dies, you know, there's nothing spectacular particularly about that. But when you see many, many men going over a trench and running through no man's land to try and take a few feet of of territory. Yeah, that's quite a statement. Something that inspiring starts making you think there's something going on here. And I think for many people <clears throat> that are willing to give their lives like that, death is death is not an enemy. Death is the natural end. It's going to come to you anyway, the natural end of your human existence. It's a transformation. It takes you back to where <laughs> you need to be. And I don't think that's something to be feared. I don't think that's something to be feared, and I, I don't think Jesus feared it. You know, whether or not his whether or not his sacrifice actually paid for the sins of people doesn't really matter. The fact that it makes people feel that their sins are paid for—that's what mm. matters. Mm. 
that they can live their life without feeling, you know, the Jewish people were constantly feeling sinful, weren't they? They were having to offer sacrifices for every little misdemeanor. Jesus comes along and says, look, I'm your sacrifice. Right. I'm going to die. You don't need to do that anymore. There you go. Freedom. What a wonderful thing, you know, to give people. Oh, absolutely. When you were when you were describing the the war the war movie, you know, I'm I'm mm. thinking about the like the D Day invasion or something, and the soldiers mm. are all running up and getting mowed down, and they just keep coming and coming. So this image is rolling through my head, and I imagine that what causes that is a a unified spirit yes. among a bunch of people. And it's yes. not it's not dissimilar to what you would feel if you were at a concert and everybody gets caught up in the same spirit. There's Absolutely. something that, that moves through them all and unites them all and it makes yeah. them greater than than they are as individuals. Absolutely, because you know, if if you were to just take one man on his own and say, look, I'm gonna send you <laughs> off the beach and you're gonna get mown down. Yeah. Uh, no, thank you. No, uh, no, you're right. You know? But the minute the minute you say, look, we're all in this together, ah, uh, totally different. You're now you're now a united body. You're a, you're an entity in your as as a group. You're an entity, and I think that's that's even the idea that comes across in Christianity. You know, it's not just that Jesus died. Christians have to die as well. You know, all Christians are on a course for death. You don't get heaven without death. Correct. You know. So I've got <clears throat> I've got something I want to ask you. It just popped in my head. So I'm sorry if we derail this one. Um, we <laughs> circle back. Um, okay. So we were talking about John earlier. Um, mm. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And I I like to connect that passage back to the beginning of Genesis, where where there's a, I'm going to butcher this, but there's a quote from the from the Bible, a scripture that says um, that God. I don't know if it was the the breath of God specifically, but God was was on the surface of the deep. You remember that? Yes, I do. I do indeed. It's uh, in the beginning, the word uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it talks about the earth being void and desolate. And then it says the spirit of God. Yes. Was uh, above the waters. Yes. Okay. So the spirit of God in that in that uh, scripture I connect to the logos in John and in, in John. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and then you've got then you've got your Christian Trinity, haven't you? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, you do. So I so I've got this idea, like this image of, in my head of God creating um the material cosmos and then and then its spirit being present there um you know in this new place that's been created. It's like God's spirit whatever that means, God always was. This is that non-being that we were talking about that people have a hard time even wrapping their brain around. It's like reality, if you can imagine that reality is more than being, that there's a way there's a way things can exist that's not like this. There is. We want to use words like another world or another realm or something like that, mm. but it, but that's not necessarily <clears throat> true. It, it could be simultaneously concurrently here and now, but but unavailable to us behind all of this somehow, intimately attached to it. And even if being wasn't here, even if the cosmos wasn't here, there's still that I am. There's still that thing that exists nowhere that we understand. Yes. No, you know. Um, so I'm now I'm getting on my high horse, Daniel. <laughs> getting going. So I, I have this I have this thing. It, it, I don't know how to like because I don't I don't I'm not a computer scientist, so I don't really know how to make the sense of this. But I'll do my best. 
This idea of God's spirit being on the surface of the water reminds me of, it's like, I'm going to butcher this. So I'm writing computer code. Let's say I'm writing computer code. The information on that code exists somehow, but it it doesn't until I run it, right? It's it's there in potential, and I have to run the code. And so you might laugh at this because you're an IT guy, but for me, I get this image of a laser. (laughs) I get this image of a laser reading this tape with data on it, and the laser itself, that's God. That's consciousness and and it its purpose like the purpose the reason the spirit of god is on the surface of the waters is to observe it it's to run the code it's to be the laser that runs the code and that transforms the code from potential into something that exists into software that's doing something on your computer um does that analogy break down what do you, how do you think of that absolutely absolutely so so back in back in 2006 i had a lot of um, thoughts that the universe itself is programmatic. Mm. Um, I, I would use an illustration when you when you're talking about code. So imagine you're a games coder, uh, game mm. uh, game software. What you do is you write you write code that says if if your character is at coordinates x y z in the game. This is what they see. Yeah. And if they move from that coordinate to another coordinate, this is what they see. Now, what they see could be randomly generated. It could be one of a a zillion possibilities are pre-programmed into it. But the point is that it doesn't actually exist until the character moves to that point in the game. (laughs) When it moves to that point in the game, there's a function that says, you know, get scenery or whatever. And it presents something to you. My argument would be, certainly from a from a player's point of view, is the universe, the world, for me at this moment in time, the only thing that exists is me, this computer, this room that I'm in. That's it. To me, you know, China doesn't exist. Australia right. doesn't exist right. until I get there. Yes. You know, it's, it's what in, in programming terms, it's what we call efficient reuse of code. Mm. <laughs> you know, and I what I tend to think is, yes, there is an I am. There is a, a Brahman without attributes behind everything. All potentiality, all potential code is 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 in that. But then the manifestation of Brahman is in each manifestation it's it's limited so a manif- so let, let's say sort of we're in a in a current manifestation a current game a manifestation of the code it's unlimited from the point of view if you, if you move anywhere in in the so-called universe there will be more universe appear but it's limited from the point of view that we're not going there sure we're sort of living in this in a very limited sort of realm you know and and coming back to the hindu idea that at the end of a yuga or a long period of manifestation the whole thing collapses in on itself and returns back to brahman without attributes and then it repeats and then it collapses and it repeats and each time it's just like a big a big game simulation going on yeah there's a there's a fractal image that comes to my mind when you say that it ends mm. and repeats and ends and repeats it's like you know 
we can think about the Big Bang as as the you know the origin point of the cosmos, and many scientists say that that's something that will end and repeat. It's going to end in the absolutely death Roger, of the universe. Roger Penrose does right, and the same thing with human beings. By the way, we were born and we die, and so it's like a it's like a, a, micro, yeah. a microcosm of what's going to happen in the cosmos is represented in a human being and anything else. Uh, and that process continues to repeat that birth and life and creation and destruction. Um, Can I just throw something in yeah. there? Because there's a, there's another layer to this. Um, and this is where I think we get all these stories of the gods and the angels and and all this sort of thing. On, on the most basic level, what you've got is Brahman without attributes that becomes Brahman with attributes. And then you have a manifestation of a universe that, that, that happens for a, for a you know, millions of years, at the end of it, um, you know, it collapses in on itself or it stretches to a point where another Big Bang occurs and then it all begins again. That's kind of the simplicity of what's happening. But I think what actually happens, each time a manifestation occurs, you don't just suddenly end up with humans, for example. Mm. What, you, what you end up with is a splintered, fragmented, um, versions of consciousness all the same consciousness mm. but many 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 of them and those those consciousnesses can each have their own little experience they can all perceive what's going on from a from a spirit conscious level i think that's where you introduce the idea of gods and angels if you will and then what you've got you've got natural evolution where you've got um again the code is written in at the start that says you know, randomly generate evolutionary processes, but the end game is for life to occur. So at some point it does occur. It's it's random, but it's not completely by chance. Yes. Yep. So what you then end up with is various life forms. And these these spirit consciousnesses that exist without bodies are able to enter into those life forms and have a a physical experience. Mm. Um, you know, entering into a homo sapien is going to be great because that body and that brain and that the eyes and, and everything has developed to a point where a spirit can have a very fulfilling, um, although limited, but very fulfilling experience of the physical reality yes. through that body. I think if you were to enter into a Neanderthal man or a monkey or a dog or a cat or a you know, you can go all the way down an earthworm or a rock. I think, you know, because people say if there's some people say there's consciousness in everything. Sure. I think you're still going to get an experience, but it's perhaps not going to be as rich. Right. But I think that's what's going on there. And I think when you when you come back to your stories of Genesis where you've got, you know, some say. God created the universe, God singular. But when you read the Hebrew, it's God's Elohim. Mm. And when you when you sort of talk about you know uh, sons of God coming down you know in Genesis uh, five and six isn't it just before the flood um, that could that could very well be spirits sort of incarnating yeah. onto the earth um, and I think that's where these mysterious stories come from from the past there have been encounters on the earth of what people at the time didn't consider human. Mm, yes. 
There's a guy called uh, Paul Wallace. Um, you should check him out. He's written three books called the Eden books. The Scars of Eden is one of them and the other. And he actually says that the Genesis account, he, he reads the Genesis account, Genesis 1, not as a creation, but as a terraforming exercise of existing creation. He says, well, yep. what, you're, what you're introduced to, you've got God creates the heavens and the earth. Yeah, great. OK, starts it all off. But then you've got this idea of a spirit hovering over this mm. this desolate world. Yes. Um, he actually likens that to some form of um, extraterrestrial uh, transportation that arrives on Earth <laughs> and then terraforms the Earth, you know, start, genetically modifies everything and. Yeah, well, I think that's interesting. You know, what comes to my mind there is, um, well, if we go back to the verse about the spirit of God being on the mm. surface of the waters, so <clears throat> sounds almost like a hovering bird of it, like a spaceship or something, doesn't it? It does hover, right? It does hover. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing about um, spirit is, um, it, um, the word the word for spirit in many cultures means breath. Mm. It's related to the idea of breath. Mm. Um, and and what comes to my mind is when Adam is created, right? Mm. You've got the you've got the material form of Adam, but then the spirit of God is breathed into him. Yeah. Right. And that's that's not just air. Because if you get a dead body, an inanimate body that has no life in it, you can blow in that body all day long. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> Till you're out yeah, of no. breath. It's not gonna no, bring it, it to life, is it? No, it's it's like it's God, it's God itself inhabiting a, a material form. It's what it the is. Code, the code, the right. code. Yes, the code. And, mm. and every material form is an incarnation of God, as far as I'm concerned. Brilliant. And that, yeah. That's yeah, that's true with space time. If and that's, that's the thing. and that would be the case if if you say that um, you know before the layer of humans, what you've got is fragmented instances of consciousness. They're all God. They're all God. Exactly. They're yeah. all Brahman experience in itself. And then those those incarnate into the you have a human experience, you live your life, you die. That's the end of it. That's the end of that experience. It's the natural end of that experience. And when you die, you return back to that pure conscious form. And I, I think what probably happens when you die and you go back to your particular instance of consciousness is you realize I am God and I've actually had all these experiences. You know, I've been Dan Torridon, I've been Chris, I've been, you know, Napoleon. Yes. Once upon a time, <laughs> was Hitler. That wasn't so yes. good. Yes, that you wasn't know? so good. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, absolutely. I don't mean that flippantly, but I think the whole thing is just a big experience, you know, and what we, something you said ages ago that really made me think is we get to choose what morality is. Morality is what we choose. Mm. So as Dan Torridon, I say that Hitler was immoral. Yep. I say elements of the Bible are immoral. immoral. Mm. But for Hitler, that wasn't immoral. Right. Right. He made his own morality. You know, and the jury will be out on that all day, won't it? But at the end of the day, it's, and I use this word, uh, I don't mean this uh, loosely, but it was just an experience. Mm. Yes. All those lives, all those deaths, um, the terrible things that have happened over the years. Yes, from our perspective, we can say they're bad, they're immoral, they're hurtful, they're harmful. We wish it hadn't happened, but they were just experiences. Mm. 
So you you bring up the idea of morality, and I think mm-hmm. I want I think I want to ask you about this. Um, before I do though, there's something else that I don't know if I ever told you, but I want to try to tell you. Earlier, if we if we go back to our conversation about um, the Babylonian influence on the on the early Bible stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously <clears throat> we have we we have Ab- we have Abraham, but we also have Moses, and Moses was a, a character who lived in well in Egypt. And uh, Moses is not um, a Hebrew name; it's a it's an Egyptian mm-hmm. name. And one of the things that I saw in a documentary that blew my mind was uh, was this: one of the great pharaohs of Egypt was was Ramses, and Ramses is Ra Mosa, Ra Moses, mm-hmm. Ra Moses is Ramses, man. Did you <laughs> did? did did anybody ever did anybody ever tell you that the etymology, if that's the right word, of the name Moses is it's related to the Egyptian pharaoh's name Ramses? Yes. Yeah. So so obviously when you look at it, isn't it? It's obvious yes, when you look at it. I think Moses, if memory serves me right, Moses means withdrawn from the water, mm. something like that. Right. Which he was, right? Because there's there's other stories, aren't there? It's not just Moses that was put in a basket and saved. You know, there's there's other stories that there is. There, there's a there's a king named Sargon the Great, and the story mm-hmm. of Sargon the Great is his birth story is exactly the same as Moses. He was his he was his life was at risk as a baby. Okay. The the royal court was going to have him killed, so his mother puts him on a basket, seals it with pitch puts it on the Tigris or the Euphrates, I don't remember which which river it was, and sent him on, on the way, hoping that somebody would preserve his life. And then when he grows up, he comes back to be to conquer again and become the king. And that's exactly the story of Moses. Moses was yeah. he was yeah. his life was threatened. He was put in a basket, put on the Nile, comes back to become a great king. So I think there is I think I think there is a thread of truth running all the way through the Bible. I don't think it's just talking about things, you know, that are just made up of somebody's head. I think I think these things definitely happened. I think it's been mashed around. I think it's mm. been embellished in places. You know? Yeah. But uh, I don't think we'll ever know until <laughs> until we die and get the other side. <laughs> and, and when we die and get to the other side, I have a feeling that knowledge isn't going to matter anymore. I, I think that's it. Yeah, yeah. I think everything. I just feel so. Um, so I, I don't want to use the word pointless, but kind of. You know when you. You know when you're in a dream. I, sometimes I have dreams, probably influenced by the war movies I watch. But I'm I'm sort of in a war situation. I'm I'm shooting people, you know, and I'm getting shot at, and you know it's it's all very dramatic, and you know lives are being lost and everything. And I wake up in a sweat. And for a few minutes, I think it's real. And then I realize it was just a dream. Mm, yeah. It was just an experience. It was just a game, a simulation, whatever you want to do. I think that's probably what life is. Mm. I don't want to belittle, you know, the deaths of millions at the hands, for example, of Hitler and, you know, other people like that. But I think when we get the other side, it won't matter so much. Mm-hmm. Right. Everything we everything we think is it matters so much. When when we have that experience, we're going to realize how mm-hmm. how foolish how foolish we were, you know. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's the 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 experience itself is what's what's painful, isn't it? Mm. That that that's the painful thing. But then you see, if you if you consider, you know, that there is a there is a reality beyond death. Everyone that's ever died 
naturally or tragically or unfairly, unjustly. If there's any truth in that, all of those people are, are, are still alive, aren't they? And those mm. consciousnesses are still alive. Right. And they're either hanging around on a spirit level if they don't want to do it all over again, <laughs> or they've gone down to the reincarnation travel agency, <laughs> flicked through one of the uh, reincarnation brochures and said, uh, oh, fancy trying that life this time around. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, think, I don't think we enter these lives um, without choice. Yeah, that's interesting. I think there's some uh, choice there. Yeah. I wonder about that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I would say about that. But I do want to ask you about morality before we I forget. Mm, I was definitely. driving with I was driving around with my wife the other day. Mm. My wife does. She does this great thing where she will uh, play contrarian to me. Um, she feels she feels compelled to, I think. So like if, if she, so if she sees me like uh, too strongly like um, behind an idea, she'll take the opposite position. Not because she wants to, she feels like she has to, and it's 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 frustrating. But I think it's nice. Also, um, we were talking about God, and she knows that I have always been fascinated by this idea. But what fascinates me the most is what people think it means, because it, it's it's one of those things that people say all the time, and and. We all presume that we know what it means or that we have some uh, common ground, but I don't mm. I don't know how much that true that is, you know, so I was, no, I, I, was, I was talking to her about it and I asked her what she thinks it means. And we were talking about also what what stories from the Bible do we think are significantly attached to this idea of God? And I told her that I don't know if anything other than the creation account would satisfy the criteria to like when I think of God, I think of creator. God is that which makes the, all of this possible. That's how I understand God. Um, other people will give me different different definitions, but usually it falls into two categories. God as creator and God as moral order. And it's that second part. It's the moral order part that I've always struggled with. It's like I, uh, I never really doubted the idea of God. It always intuitively that always made sense to me as an origin, you know, uh, the uncaused cause, you know, if we rewind, rewind time to the beginning, you know, what was there then, you know, that, that idea has always seemed to be intuitively correct. I can't argue around that, but the idea that a creator would, would have any, uh, care about how we behave, well, um, an intrinsic, um, an intrinsic, uh, Definition of good and evil. Yeah. Something like that. And mm. she, uh, she, so, cause her argument is the thing that I, she doesn't like about religious, um, traditions are the manipulation that's involved with, um, moral law. So if, if there's a moral law that falls under, um, an unquestionable God that's mitigated by priests, intermediaries, it, it gives authority to the priests. It gives authority to the church. And then they have power over you as, 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 um, adherence. So in her mind, yeah. The moral component is only about controlling people and uh, manipulating people and get, getting resources from people and sustaining a priesthood. And um, and I don't I don't I don't have a way of arguing with that because I think so much of that is true. But what do you think? Do you think that there's an, a more uh, that, that there is an origin in morality in God somewhere or do you think it's entirely 
um, a social construction. I think I think it's all I think it's all subjective. I really do. I, th- I think what you've got what you've got in so go back to Brahman unmanifested. You've got all potentials. Um, I, I'm not even going to label it at that point, good or evil. What you've got is the potential for a person to exist that uh, feeds and cares and clothes his family, for example. But then you've also got a potential for a person to exist that doesn't do any of those things, neglects his family and abuses his children. But from an unmanifest point of view, there's no label of good or evil. There's no standard of moral Mm. good or bad. I think that only comes once it fragments into uh, Brahman manifest with all these individual... Um, instances of the same consciousness but now these consciousnesses are able to make different choices this one can care for his family this one can abuse his family this one can kill six million jews this one can die to save the world and so on yeah as individuals we look at those examples which is only looking at ourselves doing different things yes yes and we say well, I think that's good, or I think that's evil. You're applying mm-hmm. a label onto an experience. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, the majority wins, doesn't it? Yes. When enough people say killing six million Jews is bad, then you have a, a war to liberate mm. people <laughs> and to get rid of that person, and you don't want it to happen again. But I, I don't think there's any intrinsic good or evil. I really don't. I just don't so let, think there is, and I don't think God is. You you definitely can't take the Bible as a standard of a God that is morally good. <laughs> because <laughs> I look at the God of the Bible and I I say, yeah, that's good, that's good. No, that is really bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you what comes to my mind because I'm sitting here in the United States of America, okay, and <laughs> in this country we have a. We have a founding document that says we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. That's what we say. Mm. And, and that's based on this idea that that our rights have to be – the reason that we protect our rights is because what we're protecting is something God-given. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and that's that goes, saying that something is intrinsically so. Yeah. Yes. And it, and it goes back to this religious idea um, that that each of us are – we, each of us are something like an instance of God that requires respect, honor, freedom, certain things that that it's like we treat each other as though each of us are something divine. That there's something yeah. divine in us that needs to be protected and fostered. And we don't we don't go out and say it, but what we mean is each of us are God and we should treat each other as we would treat God, or as we would treat ourselves, which is what Absolutely. which is what Jesus said, do mm. do unto others. But not only that, Immanuel Kant, the great the great German philosopher, said the same thing. He's he's he, philosophical, categorical imperative, and the categorical mm-hmm. imperative says exactly what it sounds like. Any action that you take, the moral standard is: Would you? Would you want this action to be a categorical imperative? Would you want to make this action what everybody does? So that's do unto others. It's do unto others. So we we treat each other as though we are each other. 
Yeah. And that is a it's a moral you're making the choices. I don't think we start, I personally don't think we start out with a moral game plan that says this is right and this is wrong. I think that's the whole point of the experience is that we experience good, we experience evil. Yes. And it's only by experiencing those things that en masse we can decide, for example, murder is wrong. It's so funny you say that. I, I told you I, I was reading the Tao Te Ching yesterday, and I brought up a quote from it about being coming from non-being. Mm. One of the other quotes in there says, "I'm going to butcher it. I wish I, I wish I could find it." It says, basically, it says, "Good, good exists because of the because of the recognition of ugliness." Or excuse me, beauty exists because the rec- because of the recognition of ugliness. Good yeah. exists because of the recognition of evil, and that you don't have one ever you only have you only ever have both right if if you only ever have both and it's the same thing evil right. is just less good good is less evil that's all it is it's just an, it's just it's a slider of um and you position yourself somewhere on that slider mm. either more towards what you label as good or what you label towards bad it's just choices again yeah so that I got an example I want to throw at you. It just popped in my head and it's strange, mm-hmm. but if we go back to the idea that I recognize there's a God, there's something about divine in me and in you, and so I treat you the way I want to be treated, or at least that's the moral standard. We, we Most people would agree that something like pain is bad, or at least generally it's bad. It's not pleasant, is it? It's not pleasant. <laughs> uh, and so we want to avoid it. But what if I'm a... What if I'm a sadomasochist? What what if I'm one of those kinky people? Yeah. <laughs> what if I'm one of those kinky people that wants you know exactly. my nipples clamped and hot wax dripped on my back or something, right? So in yeah. that situation, pain is desirable, and I'm going to want it. You know, is there a more? Is it, it, there's part of me? Part of me wants to say something like, God wants experience, and whether we judge experience good or bad, experience is desirable. Mm. Um, I don't think it's desi- I don't think that causing somebody pain who doesn't want it is desirable, but the experience of pain is better than no experience at all. Maybe something like that. I'm confused mm. in my head, but what do no, you think? I agree. I, I, I totally agree. Um, uh, just from a personal point of view, I've experienced a lot of pain in my life. I've experienced sort of abuse at the hands of uh, abusers. Um, it wasn't pleasant, but there's there's a, a kind of philosophical approach that I take where I don't get all bent out of shape by it. I, I, I don't feel any hatred or anger towards people that have abused me. Good. I just view it. I, I don't know why I view it like this. I don't know. Maybe I'm something wrong with me but i sort of look at at the things that have happened to me and i just think it was an experience it was an unpleasant experience Mm -hmm. and what i learned from that is i i would never want to do that to somebody else yes that's what i learn you know even my enemies and my teachers yes now i think it's i think it's see this idea of intrinsic goodness or badness if you take god as being the absolute standard of good or bad if God, if God said that murder was great and abuse was great and rape was great and war was great, then those things would be great, wouldn't they? This is the problem when you when you 
when you delegate your view of good and evil to a god is you're yeah. bound by what he says is good you know mm. and he, he says you know this is this is good you know love and all the rest of it but then in the next breath he's saying you know those those dodgy old canaanites they're uh, we want their land and uh, they're, they're sacrificing their children to molech so what we'll do we'll just go in and slaughter everyone uh, we won't save the kids because they were going to die anyway uh, we'll kill everybody, kids, donkeys, you name it. Uh, but we'll we'll save all the pretty girls, and that's right, and that's good, and that's just because God said so. And then mm. the people reading the Bible say, oh, it sort of doesn't uh, feels a bit uncomfortable to me. But they don't have the balls to say, I'm going to choose something morally what I feel is morally better than what God just did. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. You know, that's why, I, honestly, I, I, that's how I feel these days, Chris. I, sort of, I read the Bible and I just think, you know, if that is what God really is, then, you know, this idea of becoming like God and knowing good and evil, you know, great, let's have a bit more of that because it gives us more of a choice as to yeah. what. See, moving forward, I mean, homosexuality, I'll just come back to that one again. Why is that morally wrong? Good question. Why is it morally wrong? Killing someone, okay, I'll go with that because you've just ended a life. It's not pleasant. It's not nice for the person. But someone who has sex with someone of their own gender, where, where's who's getting hurt in that? Yeah, the only the only who's getting hurt in that. The only defense I've ever heard of that from from the biblical <laughs> perspective is the population. It, well, God, God gave us a commandment with, to be fruitful and multiply. So if you're not doing that, you're doing something wrong. But, but it, you know, there's it, always going to be someone who is having babies, isn't there? That's true. You see, yeah. see, I was watching a video the other day about sex in medieval times, and it was amazing that the priests back then um, had pretty much signed themselves up to not being married and not having sex with women. So behind the scenes, they're having sex with with boys. You know. But then they're also legislating that it's wrong for a married couple to um, enjoy having sex. When they when they have sex, they've got to leave their clothes on, <laughs> leave their clothes on, um, only in the missionary position, and you're supposed to have as least fun as possible. You know, where the hell does <laughs> where the hell does that come from? It's nonsense. And I think your wife's onto something when she says, you know, the. Um, what happens a lot of times within religious circles is a a decision of what is moral or immoral is decided by those religious leaders that say that they interpret the Bible for God. Right. They decide what's good. They decide what's bad. And then everybody's got to, got to um, accept that standard of morality rather than using their brains for a moment. Mm. Yeah. You should look within yourself and think, do I think this is bad or not bad? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, experience is the, is the judge ultimately, you know. I think so. And if you're a person that, that makes a, a, you know, a choice that harms other people, you, you will learn your lesson at some point. The universe has a wonderful way of things working out, doesn't it? You know, it, what just popped in my head was um, – when God is doing his creation in the book of Genesis, after each mm. step, God said that it was good, you know? 
It's like after after the experience, God said that it was good. I think that's what our lives are like. We have the experience, and we know it's an it's a it's a response. We know immediately if if something that we witness or some action that we take, if it's good or not. It's like yeah, as because, as, because you you go into it, you go into it knowing what you want out of it. Mm, absolutely. You know? You, you go into a relationship wanting to be loved and cared for and understood. If you go into that relationship and that doesn't happen, you don't sit there and say that was good. No. Do you? No. You know, I mean, a more philosophical point of view would be to say, well, that was an experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, it reminds me, I, I said this before, but it reminds me of something that, the, that Buddhists do as a practice um, when they experience pain. Rather than feeling or saying to themselves, "I'm in pain," they will they will push it away from themselves and say, "There is pain. There is yep. pain." You know. Yep. And it's just a it's just a little bit of a switch of perspective that changes your whole world. You know, that changes yep. your whole experience. I'll be honest. I'll be honest. All these kind of uh, thoughts and discussions that we have about morality and and good and evil and pain and suffering and everything. I'm always left somewhat wanting. There's still a bit of me that says, oh, uh, it's, yeah, not, I, it's not just an experience. It is bad. <laughs> yeah, there is something that wants a universal standard, you know. Well, maybe so, maybe that's maybe that's what the purpose is. Maybe that's what it's all about. It's we're crunching the numbers. We're crunching the code. And at the end of it, you know, the 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 majority will win out you know what filters yeah. through as being pleasant what you do want to experience maybe that it maybe that's the end game mm. the sad thing is <laughs> at the end of it all it just collapses goes back in <laughs> starts back over yeah yeah which is why the buddhists like to uh, get out of that don't they if they possibly can <laughs> mm. well one thing i want to tell you See if you know. I was watching this show uh, called Clash of the Gods on History Channel, and it was just this dramatization of different mythological stories from classical antiquity, mostly Greece and the Norse religion. It's very, very interesting to watch. But they did an episode on Hercules, and there was a couple things that I didn't know about Hercules. Um, I didn't know that this story was attached to Hercules, although I knew the story. It's it's of the Garden of Hesper- Hesperides. Do you know this Greek story? Nope. Okay, so I'll tell you uh, what I think is interesting about it. it it's some place that um, Hercules has to go during his 12 trials. So um, Hercules kills his family. And he, he doesn't realize he's done it until he comes out of his state of mind and he realizes what he's done. In order for him to redeem himself, he has to do these 12 trials where he has to kill the Hydra and Cerberus and he has to do all these crazy things. So one of the things he has to do is he has to go to this mythological place called the Garden of of Hesperides, and he he's going there to retrieve the apple, the golden apples that grow on the tree there. And the reason he see this is the food of the gods, the the apples of Hesperides, and when when you eat them, um, you live forever. So it is the it is the fruit of immortality. Okay. And so he goes and he he has to get one of these uh, he has to he has to accomplish these great feats and get this apple. But what's interesting to me is the garden 
where the golden apples of immortality grow, <laughs> right? So, so here, we, so here we, again, yes, yeah, yeah. So here we have. Oh, and it's guard. It's guarded by a serpent, by the way. He has to oh, destroy. Really? Yes, <laughs> he has to destroy. He has yeah. to destroy the serpent. So, so you know, here we have this story that's so much like the Garden of Eden story. You've got this supernatural place, the Garden and of the Eden. Hercules is like the original Adam and and the Jesus that comes and saves the day. Yeah, he's like yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Except Adam. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And and so in the Garden of Eden, you have the tree of knowledge, but you also have the tree of life. And yeah. and when when Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, the reason that God gives them for that is because. God needs to keep the way of the tree of life. That's what the Bible says. Yeah. Adam and Eve have to go because they've eaten the tree of knowledge. Now, if if, if we don't do something, they're going to eat the tree of, of life. So this is the same exact story. And here's the last bit that's interesting. This is a Greek story, um, the apple part. And we, as Christians, we learn often about the story of Adam and Eve as though the, the fruit was an apple, even though apples don't grow in in that part of the world, it's, you know, it was maybe it was a fig or maybe it was something else, but it banana, wasn't an apple. I always think, yeah, a, a banana. Okay, banana. Yeah. <laughs> so, but here's the here's the interesting thing. Um, in the Roman period, the word for apple is actually um, uh, a word that has I don't know. There's a name for it, but it's a word that um, means two things. They use it to mean two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, malus, malus means apple. But it's also where we get the word malice from. Right. It also means it also means evil. So, evil. so, yeah. the, so, so we adopted this story, this Greek story, right? Somehow, and I just, I just, I don't know if you ever heard that, but I thought that was interesting. I haven't, but that's, uh, yeah, again, that's. So, you know, there's just a couple of things that pop into my head there with the Genesis account. Again, this is where we read the Genesis account, and then. As witnesses, we as Jehovah's Witnesses, we used to sort of do this little narrative. We'd say uh, the serpent was bad. The serpent was Satan, even though Genesis doesn't say it was Satan. Mm-hmm. It just says it was a serpent. And uh, we say the serpent lied. Did it? There's nothing that says it lied. No, it didn't really, it did it? It said if you eat this, you'll, you, you won't die. Well, they didn't die, not, not initially. And then it says, uh, he says, and you will become... Like God, knowing good and bad, good and evil. What does God say? Oh, no, they've eaten the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Their eyes have been opened. They've become like like one of us, good and evil. This serpent didn't lie. Yeah, you're right. They didn't right. get kicked out because they'd become like God. They'd become knowing good. And that's not why they got kicked out. They got kicked out because if they'd hung around and eaten from this other tree, they would have lived forever. Exactly. And God exactly. didn't want someone living forever. Yep. You can't have, you can't know good and evil. You can't be Brahman manifest and be immortal. Yes, I you like that, to, man. You have to die. That process of good, evil, good, evil, deciding what's right, deciding what's moral, it has to have yes. a natural end to it at some point. The, the moment you become manifest as Brahma with attributes, the moment you become manifest okay. in, in the material cosmos, you no yep. longer have the – you can no longer live forever. The moment you the moment you pull back into the original oneness, then you have That's that perspective. That's it. But good and evil doesn't exist. But good That's and evil it. doesn't exist. <laughs> so I have this um, fascination when I was growing up that if I could go back – 
further and further in history and learn about what people thought about God and how they Mm -hmm. worshiped and what religion was like, if I could go back deeper and deeper and deeper into time, that I was going to get closer and closer and closer to some truth, to some core truth about religion. So it's almost like this evolution idea that when whenever the idea of God was first, you know, conceived of, that it changed and evolved and spread out through time and became all these different things. But if I could trace it back to the beginning, then I would know what the original ideas were, what the original inspiration was. Where did it come from? Yeah, absolutely. So my question to you is, if we could rewind time and follow this religious story all the way back to the very beginning. Yeah. What do you think the original religious ideas were? What was the first religion? Right. So I, I, I think what you're going to find, I think it's going to be, you're going to trace it back through Babylon somewhere, that sort of area of the world. I think what you're going to get is um, evolution reaching a point where humans are evolved enough for spirits to inhabit them. I think you ended up with humans coming online, spiritually coming online, having being more than just animals, mm. actually having a godlike experience, a perception of what is around mm. them mm. because of this blending of flesh. And I think you probably had interference from other spirit versions of consciousness that were probably masquerading as gods and demons gods and angels i think i think that's probably what you, what what started off i think i think these stories you know of the uh, the giants and the the angels coming down from heaven and all this sort of thing probably some sort of uh, some sort of extraterrestrial experience i think that's probably what's going on there so let me, let me ask you do you think during this period this critical period of our evolution when human beings came online when we became fully God, conscious fully self-conscious creatures we're mm-hmm. no longer we were no longer animals just sort of stimulus response yeah, creatures not, but no we, longer a cow just eating the grass yeah yes yes it's something that really had a subjective perspective that looked out of the world and thought look at all this mm-hmm. Do you think that there were human beings that reached that stage living in families and tribes with other human beings who hadn't yet? Yes, I do. In fact, this is not going to be a popular idea. I don't actually think all humans on Earth have got that in them. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that might be one for another day. (laughs) I think you have got some people that are uh, at best non-playing characters Mm -hmm. (laughs) that are just walking around, you know, filling up the space. Yeah. At worst, um, probably inhabited by an instance of uh, spirit that the problem the problem you've got is some some humans their brains are, are not developed in the same way as most are, mm. and if you put a spirit in them, um, the only experience they can possibly have is an evil one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would, I would, you know, people say, oh, if, uh, if I was Hitler, I wouldn't have killed everybody. I think you would. If you were in Hitler's brain, Hitler's body, mm. that's how you were set up. That's yeah. how you were set up. You couldn't have done good things. Do you think those first few humans that, that became fully self-conscious and looked around and tried to, to share that message with the rest of their <laughs> automatons, do you, do you think that the, those people were the first prophets? Yeah, probably. I think so, man. Yeah. I think they were the first prophets. <laughs> and I, I, I feel for them. 
Yes, when, you, right. when you're when you're one uh, one one of the few that sort of sees things in a certain way, and you're trying to trying to guide people and get them to wake up to certain ideas, it can be quite frustrating sometimes. I think unless you have the experience, you're never gonna know. Mm. You're never gonna know. I think that's a great uh, a great place to stop. I want to uh, I want to tell all the listeners here to uh, check uh, check Daniel Torden's podcast out. Uh, he's um, I at I have many layers on Twitter. The uh, podcast is the Onion Unlimited podcast. Uh, it's a it's a it's a good listen. Uh, I encourage you to check it out. Um, otherwise, Daniel, it was great talking to you, man. Hang hang in here with me. I'll I'll stop the recording and we can chat just for a second. Okay, buddy.